This episode was sponsored by Girls Can Crate, a subscription box inspiring girls to believe that they can be and do anything. Real women make the best heroes, and every month they deliver them to your front door. Hi, Olivia. Hi, Katie. Last time you told me about a death, and this time I'm going to tell you about a death. Mmm. Actually, two deaths. Two deaths and a birth. Wow. It's a very strange tale, so buckle up. Oh, no. But first, let's talk about you. Oh. You are a mother of teenagers. I am. (laughs) Listen to how excited I sound. As a modern American mother, you're probably teaching your children to follow their heart and be their true self. Yes. (laughs) But you're probably also teaching them to obey you and follow your (laughs) advice. Yes. So what should they do when their heart and your advice conflict? Uh, Well, see, this is my eternal fear as a parent because I don't want to be a parent that tells my kids that I'm always right. I guess my secret hope is that my advice will literally never conflict with what my (laughs) children's hearts are telling them to do. That's absolutely (laughs) gonna happen. (laughs) I feel like we have all been there, large or small. We have all been there when what our heart is telling us to do is not what our parents are telling us to do. Yep. (laughs) This is an impossible choice that we have all experienced where we, in American society, we value both of these things at the same time. We value self-respect and being true to yourself. And we also value being grateful to your parents and acknowledging that they know more than you and, and, you know, listening to your superiors. But there come those times when you have to choose. We choose either defiance in the interest of self-respect, being true to ourselves, or individuality, which we love so much in America, Mm -hmm. you know, or we choose self-sacrifice for the good of those around us. Well, a young woman named Perpetua, 22 years old, a new mother, Mm. she was faced with this impossible choice in the year 203 CE. Wow. 203. Yeah. 1,800 years ago. All right. Going way back. She lived in ancient Carthage, which is modern day Tunisia in northern Africa. Oh. It's a pretty bizarre tale. And it's a story that's got everything. It's got gladiators in the arena, Mm. premature childbirth in prison, prophetic visions, slavery, and even a most ferocious cow. (laughs) Okay, already my new favorite story. I'm Katie Nelson. And I'm Olivia Mickle. And this is What's Her Name? Fascinating women you've never heard of. Well, for this story, we can thank Dr. Eliza Rosenberg. I'm Eliza Rosenberg. I'm a teaching fellow in the Department of Religious Studies at Utah State University. I teach classes in world religions, biblical studies, and Judaism and Christianity. She read the ancient sources in the original languages because she's one of those, you know, language geniuses. That's awesome. 
I can read Biblical Hebrew, Koine or New Testament era Greek, and Classical Latin, wow. which means I can also deal with Church Latin and Neo-Latin. My modern research languages are French and Spanish. So when we first meet Perpetua in the historical record, she's in prison. Oh no. She's been arrested with a group of people. Some of them are wealthy and well-educated like her, mm. and some of them are slaves. They've all been arrested together for reasons which will soon become clear. And she decides she's gonna write down her story. So Perpetua writes a journal or writes down her impressions of things that are going on while she's under house arrest and when they're later put into prison. Her father, he's there visiting her in prison and he's completely distraught. Oh. She's also a new mother, so he has her baby there <laughs> to visit her in prison so she can breastfeed her baby. Oh. Okay, so here's the thing. She can secure her own release. She has the power to be free, to go and be with her husband or father and her baby. How? How? Wait, <laughs> how? What? <laughs> Why doesn't she? Yeah, all she has to do is light some incense for the emperor or offer him some wine. And she won't do it. Oh, that's... Oh, is this religious? This is religious. Ah. She's a Christian. Yep. She won't do it. And this is why they've been arrested. This is Margaret Clitheroe all over again. Yeah, it is a similar story. We have a Christian martyr here again. And, yeah. I mean, the weird thing is, I'm not a religious person, but I keep coming up with these religious figures in history <laughs> to tell you about. <laughs> I find the history of ideas which includes philosophy and religion, I find it especially fascinating. And and this particular period of history, early Christianity, early Christianity mm. is wild and fantastical and fun and bizarre and mysterious and amazing. So this mm. is one of my favorite time periods to teach in class. It's just, it is a foreign country. It is an amazing world. <laughs> okay, so the Christian world she lives in is 200 years after this man named Jesus of Nazareth lived in the eastern part of the Roman Empire. Hmm. And he shared this message of love and peace. And then he was deemed to be dangerous by the Roman authorities and executed. Um, so this is 200 years after that. The story of this, this guy, Jesus, and his message has spread kind of in fits and starts sporadically all over the Roman Empire. Christianity was in its beginnings just another movement. It was variously outlawed or not looked well on, sometimes persecuted actively. But there were a number of different groups all with different claims. Some practiced a Christianity that looked very much like the Judaism of the day. Others were groups with entirely pagan backgrounds that looked nothing like it. They didn't have an agreed upon set of texts like the New Testament. Mm -hmm. As we biblical scholars always say, the one thing the Bible is not is a book. It's a collection of books. Mm. And you couldn't get it all in one volume until centuries after this. What you don't have is anybody who can say, these books are in, these books are out, period. Mm -hmm. You don't have anybody who can say, I have the authority to excommunicate you. Right. 
if you were to travel all around the Mediterranean around the year 200, you would encounter hundreds of different religions. I mean, there's a huge variety of religious belief all around the Mediterranean. And, and everything touching the Mediterranean is owned by the Roman Empire. Mm. There's no rule about what you can or can't believe in the Roman Empire. But as a show of patriotism, once a year, you will give an offering to the cult of the emperor. Mm. And it's kind of, it's a way of saying, I'm in on this Roman thing. It's not like you have to believe in the emperor's gods. You're basically making a show of patriotism, like, we believe in you, emperor. Everybody does that. Mm -hmm. But these weird little pockets of people calling themselves Christians, they won't do it. And many of the Christians are also worshiping in secret and uh, they won't allow anybody to see what's going on in their rituals. And that kind of adds to the suspicion. They're like, well, why wouldn't you let us see? What, what's going on in there that you don't want anybody to know about it? Yeah. So, I mean, they're not really doing themselves any favors. They're looking very, very suspicious. And pretty much everybody in Rome is like, Christians, you're creepy. And yeah. we've got our eye on you. But also, it's hard for them to pinpoint actually who is a Christian because there's like hundreds of different versions of Christianity. You do have all of these little various movements. Was Jesus really a human being or was he only apparently human? Mm -hmm. um, if he's the son of God, is he actually God or is he actually human? What is the authority of the apostles? Should Christians from Gentile backgrounds be following Jewish dietary laws and Sabbath observances? Should Christians obey civil authority? If so, when and how? Mm. If you're called to make, called on to sacrifice to the, to the Roman gods for the health of the emperor, should yeah. you do that? Some schools say, go right on ahead because the Roman gods are not real. Mm. You might as well be, if you pour some wine on the ground, whatever, wine gets spilled, that's all that's happened. Yeah. Others say absolutely not. Huh. These are idols. Um, some say that the, the Roman gods are nothing. Some believe that they very much exist mm -hmm. and are demons. Oh. Some groups value martyrdom very highly and really encourage people. Perpetua appears to have been from one of these groups that values martyrdom called Montanists, and she was a prophetess. Mm. She seems to have been a really big deal, which probably is why she got the attention of the Romans, right? She has a reputation as experiencing these religious visions in her dreams, mm. and she is considered an authoritative figure in her religious community. Her brother, who is also a Christian in prison with her, addresses her uh, as lady sister, domina, oh. soror. You never call your family member this. Her father, pleading with her, also addresses her as my lady, oh. which is highly unusual. So she is considered an especially important figure, an especially important prophetess, and she's going to face martyrdom, so she is probably being provided with the means to either write something down or somebody might be recording it for her. Okay. This is unusual, and this is one of the things that makes the text so distinctive. That's pretty cool that we have a woman prophet yeah. Uh, there 
probably were at least a handful, possibly quite a few of these early versions of Christianity that were more liberal, more open to female power and female leadership. Uh We actually have the moment of her confession in her own words. And she wrote in Latin. The proconsul, actually, the magistrate who she's appearing for, is actually trying to get her to to renounce her beliefs to save her life. Mm. So he says, Fac sacrum pro salute imperatorum, et ego respondi non facio. Make the sacrifice on behalf of the emperor. And I said, I won't do it. Hilarianus, Christiana es incuit, et ego respondi Christiana sum. Hilarianus, are you a Christian? He asked. I replied, I am a Christian. These are the kinds of Christians Romans execute. When religious irregularity is seen as a threat to the state that's become especially obnoxious, those who are accused of it and convicted of it can be thrown into the games, condemned to the beasts. Roman authorities seem to have operated under a general oral policy of you identify the, the ringleaders, the people who are the loudest, the people who are very visible, you make an example of them. The idea is to keep this perceived threat to state authority contained within reasonable bounds. This is how Roman law generally works. So if an example needs to be made, in ancient Rome they do it in a spectacularly gruesome style in the public arena. And these arenas, you know, like the Colosseum, they see thousands of people, sometimes tens of thousands. By the time of the Roman Empire, the point of the games, the point of the arena, is both to put on a public spectacle and to show the authority of the state to punish in in literally spectacular fashion people who threaten the state order. The normal victims of the arena are slaves who are accused of planning revolts. The other thing is that most professional gladiators were enslaved. Mary Beard and Keith Hopkins in their recent history of the Colosseum have estimated that your average gladiator was 17 when he first entered combat and at 17 had a remaining life expectancy of five years. In earlier generations of history there was this attempt to say, okay, how does the arena work in Roman social context? We have to understand it. It's not that weird. Everybody back then accepted it as normal after all. Mm In fact, not everybody accepted it as normal, and you have plenty of pagan, Mm -hmm. as well as Jewish and Christian philosophers saying, uh, this is cruel and vicious. The historical reality is that it's even weirder than our movie and TV versions. Like, Mm. so our modern interpretations kind of, they don't scale back the brutality, but they scale back the strangeness. Mm. There's a lot more pageantry. There's, they put the people who are going to be executed in costumes to try to, like, tell mythological tales. There's a lot of symbolism involved. Right. And, in fact, Perpetua's account, Perpetua's history, is one of our key historical sources for what really went on in the Roman games. Hmm. So Perpetua knows she's going to die. And she wants to die. In fact, Mm. her real pressing concern is, will her slave Felicitas, who has been arrested with her, die too? Mm. Felicitas is pregnant, and under Roman law, pregnant women can't be executed. Mm. And you're probably thinking, you know, Perpetua cares about her slave and wants to save her. Kill me, but not my slave. But that's not it at all. 
Felicitas is heavily pregnant and they pray for her to give birth earlier than usual because pregnant women can't be executed under Roman law. They want to be martyred together. And so they pray to God, please let Felicitas give birth prematurely so she can die with me. <laughs> it's just weird from a mm. modern perspective. Felicitas gives birth in what's called the eighth month. That's a colloquialism. It means she's early. And while she's giving birth, she's crying out in pain. And she doesn't seem to be attended by a midwife. The prison warden is mocking her oh, wow. and says, if you're in, crying in so much pain now, what is it going to be like when you face the beasts? Felicitas says, right now I suffer what I suffer. But when I suffer, then there will be another in me who suffers for me because I am suffering for him. And it's said that uh, her baby survives, not something to be taken for granted at this point in history. And the text says that it is given to a sister, i.e. A, a member of the church, who brought her up as a daughter. And then the, the narrative says that Felicitas goes from blood to blood. And from blood to blood, from the blood of childbirth to the blood of the arena. It was not pretty. First, they are led out, and the men in the group are dressed as priests of Saturn, the Roman god, and the women are dressed as priests of Ceres, the, the Roman goddess of the harvest. Perpetua objects to this and says, no, we've turned ourselves in. We are dying as Christians. I refuse to go out there dressed as a pagan priestess. Whatever the reason, the soldiers accede to her argument and they're allowed to take off their costumes, although she and Felicitas, who has just given birth two days before, are then brought out naked and covered only in nets uh, of, of a rotarius, which is a kind of gladiator. Oh. If you've read The Hunger Games, Finnick yeah. okay. is, a, is basically a rotarius. They, they seem to have been going for some kind of appropriate gladiatorial look, Okay. And a Rotarius often wore a net that was draped very slightly to conceal a little bit. Oh. So Perpetua and Felicitas are let out effectively naked and the crowd objects because Perpetua is described as a pretty young girl, Puella, although she's 22 and a married mother. Okay. And they can see that Felicitas has just given birth and her breasts are dripping with milk. Mm. And they object and say this isn't decent. Send them back and put clothes back on them take them back and put clothes on them. <laughs> so they have like this moral code where it's, they're like- It's okay to kill them, but just you can't just have them Just put be some naked. clothes on them first. So they take them away. They put them in robes and they bring them back out. <laughs> first, the men are led out to fight the beasts, a leopard, a bear, and a boar. The animals that were used in these combats usually had been recently captured from the wild and transported to the cities by the Roman army. They were not domestic animals. They had just been caught. The people had no idea of how to care for them properly and no interest in keeping them alive too long. So we're talking about panicked, generally very sick, very undernourished, dying animals. Do not think about a, a leaping leopard. One gladiator, an actual professional gladiator, is gored to death by the boar that was supposed to gore one of the martyrs. And then the others 
are variously attacked by a leopard and a bear. They're mauled but not killed. Uh, one of them isn't even bitten. Again, it's not natural behavior for bears or leopards just to be thrown into arena and presented with random humans. Right. They might attack, but it doesn't naturally provoke their hunting instincts necessarily. And we're, again, we're talking about panicked, very sick animals. Right. The women, meanwhile, are sent to face what the text calls a most ferocious cow. I was wondering about that. <laughs> yeah. It's very odd. <laughs> Women were not usually thrown to the beasts. Huh. Uh, and the text says this was an effort to intimidate or humiliate them because of their sex. Women should be facing a female animal. It's so weird. Nobody, it's not normal like in our other accounts of gladiator games. We don't hear about cows. So the whole thing is just very strange. And the cow is not really happy about its situation and it tosses them around. They're injured, but again, they're not killed. Mm -hmm. But it, this was pretty common. In a combat with beasts, not that many gladiators were actually killed by the animal. The ones who are still alive, one of them gets bitten by a leopard. And so finally they are all, they're described as half dead. They're badly injured, but not dead. And so then they bring out a gladiator with a sword to finish them off. We're told they are singing psalms. Perpetua is described as bringing Felicitas up. We're told Perpetua hasn't experienced pain visibly so far, but first the gladiator stabs her between the bones, might have been going for the heart, and she cries out in pain, but he misses. And then she, with manly courage, guides his hand to her throat so he can cut her jugular and they die. Let's pause to thank our sponsor, Girls Can Crate. Sally Ride said, you cannot be what you cannot see. And Girls Can Crate believes that the more girls learn about real women who did fearless things and made the world better, it will inspire them to believe in themselves and their own potential to make the world better too. You know, I think we keep saying this, but these are so cool. Plus, they just launched something that I think is pretty cool. It's a mini crate. It's a smaller and more affordable version of the big monthly crates. Use the coupon code HERNAME all one word, to get 20% off your first month's crate. Go to girlscancrate.com. So there's a few elements of the story that are so intriguing. The relationship between Perpetua and Felicitas is mysterious. Mm. But it's only the person who wrote the afterword who saw fit to include Felicitas at all. So Felicitas, she's a slave. She's probably Perpetua's slave. And the more we know about slavery in ancient Rome, the more we know that that relationship can't have been loving. There was a tendency in certain generations of history to portray Greco-Roman slavery as comparatively benign. Mm -hmm. And that actually grew out of abolitionist impulses in the 19th century that wanted to present American slavery as especially depraved. Okay. 
recent generations of, hist of history and historiography have pretty well dispensed with that. Now, ancient slavery was not racialized. Mm -hmm. We are not talking about a race-based regime or a modern concept of race. Mm -hmm. But the dynamics of it and the facts of it were every bit as nasty. And this is kind of grisly, but mm. I learned from Dr. Rosenberg that the way you'd be able to tell if someone was a slave in ancient Rome was um, by the way they looked. They would have their fair woman, they'd have their hair cut short. But the dead giveaway that a person is a slave is the bruises all over their body. Perpetua may very well not have cared about, it might not have occurred to her to care too much about Felicitas. Is it theoretically possible that Perpetua just tells her slave, you are going to come and die with me because you have to? It is possible. That said, she reports the magistrate questioning all of them and anybody who was willing to sacrifice could save their lives. Hmm. So technically in the circumstances, if Perpetua said, you're going to come and die with me, and the magistrate said to Felicitas, well, will you sacrifice to the emperor? Felicitas could have said yes. Oh, okay. And she would have been sold to someone else mm. or wound up the property of Perpetua's father. Mm. That said, if, if Perpetua owned her, the dynamics, the power dynamics of that relationship are rather like the most horrific form of domestically abusive relationship that you can imagine, and then that put on steroids. Wow. So the fact that, okay, legally there was an out and they could have said no, mm -hmm. technically, might not have meant anything. The iconography also depicts the two of them. Uh, you can see the powerful assumptions going on. Uh, these, the people oh, depicting them yeah. are thinking, okay, we have an owner and a slave. Mm -hmm. So we have a white owner and a black slave. Um, but that's just taking North America's slavery system and mapping it on to the past, like slaves. Right. Yeah, this is the relationship that goes on. But uh, and in the animated version, Perpetua is redheaded and white skinned. <laughs> of course she is. Yeah, that is the least likely scenario. In Greco-Roman antiquity, there was no sense of a heritable or an inherent physical characteristic that put you in the class of free versus enslaved. The idea that a slave would necessarily be somebody who's darker skinned and a free person is somebody who's lighter skinned right. just wasn't really part of the ancient reality. In this world, people came in a whole spectrum of skin color and hair color and eye color and other physical traits. And people on any point of the spectrum could be free or could be enslaved. You, I can't say Perpetua wouldn't, have read as white in modern racial terms, but I also can't say she didn't have antlers. <laughs> uh, the text never says she doesn't. Uh, I, yeah, Perpetua would read, I suspect, in, in modern North American racial categories. She certainly wouldn't, I would be very surprised if she read as white. Felicitas could have been a local. She could have been kidnapped initially from Ethiopia and sold in Egypt and wound up in Carthage. Yeah. She could have been kidnapped in Germany. And yeah wound up in Rome, and then she could have been anything. But what I find most provocative and unusual about her story is that she herself, in the text, repeats motifs about parenthood 
It seems like that's what she is fixated on. Hmm. First, she's constantly alluding to her father. We think of Rome as a patriarchal society, and it was literally father ruled. Mm -hmm. A father's authority was absolute and unbreakable, mm -hmm. which meant that when his daughter married, she was not in the legal power of her husband. She remained oh. in the legal power of her father. If she had a court case or were charged with something, her father, not her husband, would be the man responsible wow. for that. So Perpetua's defiance of her father is remarkable. He comes and he begs her repeatedly. We don't know if he's Christian or not, but her father, he's this prominent local figure. And he's mm. there in the prison begging her, please just burn some incense, please. Mm. He even brings her baby to her to say, this child needs you, I need you. And she's clearly his favorite. The text makes clear that he loves her more than her brothers. And he's this white haired old man mm. there in the prison saying, you don't have to do this, please don't leave me. So here she is presented with this the impossible choice. Do I do wow. what my heart is telling me to do, or do I do what my father is telling me to do? It gets to the point where he, he who is a high-ranking local man, mm -hmm. is publicly beaten by the magistrate. And she's linking her son with this. She, represents herself as a good Roman mother who's concerned about her son who breastfeeds him herself. And then she says, she severs that attachment. So what do you do when your heart tells you one thing and your family says another? Oh man. I don't know. <laughs> I don't uh. have answers. I mean, and it becomes, you know. Depends, yeah. Depends on which ethical philosophy. If what you believe is right is harming the people that you love and that's wrong. Exactly. Then what? She's harming her child and her father by following her moral code that says don't harm people. <laughs> yeah. You have this young woman who is fairly privileged young woman who is defying every social convention. And this is not adolescent rebellion mm. or I won't embrace the corporate workforce. It's <laughs> I am going to embrace a premature grisly death that I could very easily avoid right. and going through with it. I think I am always going to land on you have to do what you personally feel is the ethical, moral choice. But what if you're an idiot? Right, but I guess rather be an ethical idiot than <laughs> an idiot I, with integrity. Yeah, I, I guess I see more harm in the world from people abandoning their integrity mm. than from people sticking to it. Yeah, but if everybody is true to their own inner guide, then that means, you know, bullies are like, to be true to myself, I must pound everybody on the playground. Yeah. <laughs> Some people should suppress their inner guide and do what other people tell them to do. <laughs> yeah. If your inner guide says, I will die for this cause, 
And also, my slave who has just given birth, she must also die for this cause. Or yeah. That's why we have to have personal integrity and a society with rules that says, no, you can't you do can't, that. You can't harm people. You can't actively harm people, even if you think it's right. The text presents her as a very admirable figure. Uh, Augustine actually says in a sermon that Perpetua and Felicitas are easier for us to admire than imitate. She tries to reason with her father. She has this, she apparently has this lifelong, very affectionate relationship with her father. And she really wants him to be happy for her because she's embracing this glorious destiny. She's really, she, she says, I pitied him in his unhappy old age. And she says she suffers with him when he's beaten for trying to intervene with her. But she just keeps going forward. Read the text, there's a dragon. <laughs> I'm going to include that. If you want to learn more about Perpetua and Felicitas, find books and links on our website, whatshernamepodcast.com. There's even a new graphic novel version of their story, which carries Dr. Rosenberg's full stamp of approval. Music for this episode was recorded on The Ancient Lyre by Michael Levy, who specializes in recreating music from the ancient past. You can support his great work by finding his many awesome albums on Amazon Music, Spotify, etc., and at his website, ancientlyre.com. Music was also provided by Unstoppable Farmer, which you can download from our website. Special thanks to Dr. Eliza Rosenberg. Daniel Foster-Smith recorded this interview on site, and What's Her Name is produced by Katie Nelson and Olivia Mickle. You can follow us on social media, Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook, where we post lots of additional content each week. Katie runs the Instagram page, and Olivia runs Facebook and Twitter. We have a huge amount of gratitude for our sponsors. Special thanks to Leslie Light and Leanne Christensen for sponsoring our podcast. You can become a sponsor for a buck a month. Go to our website, whatshernamepodcast.com, and click on Donate. Thank you for listening. What kind of underwear was Queen Elizabeth I having to deal with when she dominated that English throne? What did women in ancient Egypt use for contraception? Ready to meet a whole host of fascinating women? Just look for The Exploress wherever you get your podcasts.